From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. You're listening, you're listening. You're listening. You're listening. to Terra Informa. school season is in full swing, tree leaves have begun to turn yellow, and spooky season is right around the corner. That means summer has come to an end, and it's time for another News Roundup episode. My name is Jacinta Royangeza, and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news, stories, and ideas. Before we begin this episode, we would like to acknowledge that this episode was produced on Treaty 6 territory in Amiskachewaskigan, Beaver Hills House, or so-called Edmonton. We're broadcasting from unrecognized Papas Chase Cree territory. The Papas Chase Cree were displaced following consistent efforts from local officials like Frank Oliver to discredit the legitimacy of their treaty right to this territory and to reserve 136, now South Edmonton. Not confined to history, this region is also the present homelands of many First Peoples who build their lives here, pursue livelihoods, and gather together, including Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, and Dene. Wherever you're listening, we ask you to consider whose version of history informs your understanding of the land you're on. On September 30th, the country will mark its third National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, a day to honor the victims and survivors of the residential school system and reflect on the intergenerational harm inflicted on their families and communities. Public commemoration of this history is just one aspect of the reconciliation process. We hope you also take time to reflect on the ongoing inequities faced by Indigenous peoples and learn how you can relieve these burdens. This week, we're catching you up on some of the environmental news stories you might have missed while the Terra Informa team took some much-needed time to catch up on our R&R. Our first story of this news roundup, all about a new study published in June, which claims to have found a link between slower biological aging and green spaces. There is a wealth of scientific literature linking the presence of urban green spaces, such as parks or community gardens, to improved cardiovascular health and lower mortality rates. However, the cause of these positive health outcomes was primarily thought to be the physical activity or social interactions occurring in these spaces. A recent study published in the peer-reviewed journal Science Advances suggests that having access to green spaces may also positively impact how a person ages biologically. Specifically, researchers at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine found that those who lived near more green spaces were biologically younger, on average, than those who lived around less green spaces. To explore the relationship between urban green spaces and aging, researchers analyzed a type of chemical modification in DNA known as methylation. DNA methylation works by adding a chemical group to DNA. When added to specific places on the DNA, this chemical group blocks proteins that attach to DNA to read the gene. Patterns of DNA methylation change with age, so these changes can be used to estimate a person's biological age. 
Some studies even suggest that DNA methylation can more accurately measure age than calendar years. And while other factors do play a role, DNA methylation can be a good predictor of various health outcomes, such as cardiovascular diseases and cancers. For their study, researchers at the Feinberg School of Medicine followed over 900 people living in four U.S. cities. Using satellite imagery, they assessed how close each participant lived to surrounding green spaces over a 20-year period, and then paired this data with blood samples taken to determine their biological age, after controlling for other variables like education, income, and levels of physical activity. Researchers found that people whose homes were within a 5-kilometer radius of green spaces with 30% green cover were on average 2.5 years younger biologically than those whose homes were surrounded by a green space with only 20% green cover. There are, however, limitations to this study and its conclusion. The use of satellite imagery was used to determine the quantity of greenery, but the researchers note it does not help determine the quality of that greenery or its type. For instance, the study does not differentiate between a forested nature trail or a golf course. Researchers also note that further studies are required to fully investigate the link between urban green spaces and specific health outcomes. The study does not make clear how greenery reduces aging, only that it does. Also left unanswered was the differences in aging between races and socioeconomic classes. Nevertheless, the study should serve as a warning to governments. More than half of the world's population currently lives in urban areas. By the year 2050, this number is projected to be around 68%. And in the words of Peter James, an environmental epidemiologist with Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health, urban planning needs to view green spaces as, quote, an essential piece of infrastructure, the same way it does sewer systems and garbage collection. For our next headline, we're jumping to July. Here's Lizzie Barron talking about new restrictions enacted by the City of Edmonton to reduce single-use items. If you've been to a grocery store or had a craving for takeout in Edmonton this summer, you've probably noticed a big difference with your order, the plastic bag, or rather, the lack of one. On July 1st, the City of Edmonton's single-use item bylaw came into effect. The bylaw, which was originally passed by Council in October 2022, has two main objectives. First, to reduce the number of single-use items entering Edmonton's waste system. And second, to promote the use of recyclable alternatives by businesses and consumers. Some of the major items addressed by the bylaw include shopping bags, takeout containers, and single-use cups and cutlery. For plastic bags, the practice of businesses charging a nominal fee for a bag at checkout is no more. Shoppers in Edmonton must pay at least 15 cents for a paper bag or at least $1 for a new reusable bag. In July 2024, this minimum price jumps to 25 cents for paper or $2 for reusable. For diners, styrofoam products such as plates and cups can no longer be sold. Restaurants must now serve dine-in customers with reusable cups, as well as develop policies for accepting cups provided by customers. Automatically providing single-use utensils is also no longer the default. Customers must request them explicitly or be prompted for them by either a staff member or self-service option like a delivery app or in-store kiosk. 
Any individual or business found in violation of these standards will be subject to a minimum $500 fine. That said, there are some exceptions. While the bylaw applies to most organizations with a business license or permit in the case of large city events, registered charities are exempt to ensure their ability to provide critical social services is not affected. The same applies to schools, long-term health facilities, and hospitals. There are also additional exemptions for some types of business licenses, either due to safety reasons or feasibility reasons. Nevertheless, the City of Edmonton City Council hopes that the approach taken by the bylaw will reduce consumers' reliance on disposable items by forcing them to look at and change their habits and behaviors. This is especially pertinent as more stringent regulations are on the way. On December 20th, 2023, the federal government's single-use plastic ban will forge ahead by prohibiting the sale of any single-use plastic products in Canada. Though more focused on reducing plastic pollution than waste reduction, there is an overlap with the City of Edmonton's bylaw. For example, both look to ban plastic shopping bags as well as foam cups, plates, and takeout containers. The federal regulations, however, will take things a step further by banning plastic straws, stir sticks, utensils, and other plastic items that are difficult to recycle. In scheduling the bylaw just a few months before the federal regulations come into force, the city hopes they'll be in a position to facilitate a smoother transition among Edmonton businesses and residents, leading to better compliance and environmental outcomes. For Terra Informa, this is Lizzie Barron. Thank you for listening. You just heard Lizzie Barron discuss the City of Edmonton's single-use item reduction bylaw, which came into effect on July 1st, 2023. Next up, a call to action issued with a recently published report on invasive species. Intergovernmental Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystems, or IPBES for short, is an independent intergovernmental body established by member states of the United Nations. The organization exists to strengthen the interface between the scientific community and policymakers with the goal of ensuring sustainable use of biodiversity, long-term human well-being, and sustainable development. On September 4, 2023, IPBES published a comprehensive assessment of the, quote, underappreciated, underestimated, and often unacknowledged threat posed by invasive species on a global basis. The report, which is titled Assessment Report on Invasive Alien Species and Their Control, found that human activities have both intentionally and unintentionally introduced more than 37,000 species outside of their natural areas. Of these so-called alien species, more than 3,500 are classified as invasive because they possess the capacity to dramatically harm their new ecosystems. It best found that invasive alien species have played a major role in 60% of known animal and plant extinctions globally. In 16% of cases, they were the sole driver. The most documented impact that invasive alien species have on native species is by changing ecosystem properties, such as the characteristics of soil and water, through competition or predation. This causes a process known as biotic homogenization, where biological communities become more similar. 
This has major complications on the function and structure of ecosystems. In the future, the threat posed by invasive alien species on biodiversity is expected to worsen. Of the 37,000 alien species introduced outside of their natural areas by human activities, 37% of these have been reported since 1970, largely because of rising levels of global trade and travel. Presently, new alien species are being recorded at an unprecedented rate of approximately 200 a year. With the rapid acceleration of the global economy, however, a significant increase in invasive alien species and their negative impacts is expected. Drivers outside of the global economy will aid negative outcomes worldwide. Climate change, for example, will amplify the competitive ability of established invasive species. That is to say, climate change will extend possible livable areas, offering new opportunities for invasive species to introduce and establish themselves. These negative impacts are not just confined to plants and animals. According to IPBES, nearly 80% of the documented impacts of invasive alien species as it relates to nature's contributions to people are negative. Across all regions, the most frequently reported impact is damage to food supplies. An example close to home is Carcinus manus, known more commonly as the European green crab. The crab is native to several European coastal regions, but is believed to have found its way to North American shores in the early 1800s. The green crab is a voracious predator, feeding on a wide variety of intertidal animals according to Fisheries and Oceans Canada. The first green crabs in Canadian waters were observed in southwestern New Brunswick in the 1950s. Since this time, they've spread across the eastern and western shores of Canada, threatening multi-billion dollar fishery operations. Invasive alien species also possess the capacity to negatively impact our quality of life. The most obvious example is through human health, as invasive alien species can serve as vectors of infectious diseases that lead to epidemics. All of these impacts outlined so far come with real costs. In 2019, IPBES conservatively placed the monetary cost of invasive alien species at over $420 billion annually, a cost that has actually quadrupled every decade since 1970. There are also invaluable cultural costs to be considered, as people with the greatest dependence on nature, such as indigenous communities and local communities, have reported adverse effects to their autonomy, rights, and cultural identities. So what can be done about invasive alien species? Effective governance is key. While IPBES does acknowledge 80% of countries have biodiversity strategies and plans for managing biological invasions, 83% are lacking specific regulations for invasive alien species. Addressing this policy gap is the first and most important step to addressing the issue of invasive alien species. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Terra Informa, a production of CJSR 88.5 FM. This week on Terra Informa, we're rounding up the headlines you might have missed this past summer. So far, we've covered two interesting studies, 
one on biological aging, and another on invasive species. And we also covered the new waste reduction bylaw in the city of Edmonton. For our next headline, we've got a story from Lauren Spielman about sriracha lovers feeling the heat as supply shortages continue. Here's Lizzie again. For the second summer in a row, the world saw a shortage of the beloved green-capped rooster label Hui Feng Food Sriracha Sauce. Of the in-store supplies that were available, prices were high and bottles were rationed. Supply was no better online. Even Amazon at one point was selling a two-pack of 17-ounce bottles for $160. Prior to the shortage, one 17-ounce bottle would go for less than $5. Times are desperate, as some restaurants have even reported customers swiping sriracha bottles off tables. Hui Feng Foods say a shortage of red chili peppers they use to make the sauces to blame. And to explain the shortage, we need to look at Mexico and the Colorado River. This summer, Mexico and southern parts of the United States experienced severe drought conditions. Despite the fact that chili peppers grow well in arid environments and that they require less water than other crops, such as alfalfa or pecans, intense heat waves and water shortages that have struck Mexico have shrunk harvests. Climate change is driving a warming planet, and experts warn declines in crop yields could become a regular problem. This isn't just a climate issue, it's a problem of water allocation as well. The Colorado River does not just serve the water needs of Americans, it also supplies water to farms in Mexico. The river has been chronically overused and supply is being depleted. Yet amidst this crisis, the U.S. farms maintain first rights to that water supply. It isn't just Hui Fong foods that rely on Mexico suppliers for its red chili peppers. The U.S. imports over $44 billion worth of agricultural products from Mexico a year. Mexico is also not the only place suffering agriculturally from the drought. In Kansas, hard red winter wheat is also set to see low harvests this year. This versatile crop is used in everything from bread rolls to cereal to all-purpose flour. In recent years, supply chain issues have become an increasingly pertinent issue. The COVID-19 pandemic exposed the extreme reliance on overseas production. The Russia-Ukraine war has caused global grain and energy shortages. Inflation rates have skyrocketed. The sriracha sauce shortage is the consequence of a shock in the agricultural supply chain. But for many consumers, it is more than that, as it's another example of how the effects of climate change can be seen in their kitchen pantries. For Terra Informa, this has been Lizzie Barron. Thank you for listening. Thanks, Lauren and Lizzie. Now, here's a story about sweltering temperatures experienced during the U.S. Open, which wrapped up earlier this month. One player is gonna die, and they're gonna see. Those words were uttered by tennis player Daniil Medvedev in the middle of his quarterfinals match against Andre Rublev during this year's U.S. Open. What had Daniil so concerned for the well-being of himself and his opponent? The brutal heat and humidity. Since 1978, the U.S. Open has been played on the hard courts of the USTA Billie Jean King National Tennis Center in Flushing Meadows, a tennis complex located in Queens, New York. At the start of the tournament, temperatures at Flushing Meadows were in the balmy 20 degrees Celsius range. By day seven, That changed dramatically as temperatures hit 32 degrees Celsius and humidity topped 50%. United States Tennis Association officials made the decision to partially retract the roof of the Arthur Ashe Stadium, normally used to block out rain, 
in order to provide some protection against the sun for the rest of the tournament. Three days later, during Medvedev's match, players and spectators alike were still soaked with sweat, as temperatures neared 35 degrees Celsius and the humidity climbed to 70%. Medvedev and Rublev were able to sit on ice towels, take lengthy bathroom breaks, hose themselves down with cold water at every available opportunity, and avail themselves of the air conditioning units at their seats. Still, week two of the US Open pushed these players to the brink. Medvedev felt dizzy after his win, Rublev described feeling his heart racing between points, and because of the heat, both players rubbed their faces raw from toweling off so frequently. But the temperatures experienced during the tournament shouldn't be that much of a surprise. Analysis conducted by the Associated Press showed the average maximum temperatures felt during the U.S. Open have gotten higher and more dangerous in recent decades. The same goes for the other three major tennis tournaments, the Australian Open, the French Open, and Wimbledon. By tracking the Thermal Comfort Index, which measures air temperature while also taking into account humidity, radiation, and wind, the Associated Press found that the maximum temperatures at those tournaments have risen by 3 degrees collectively since 1988. A consequence of climate change and the global heat waves it continues to induce. Sports occupy a unique place in society. On one hand, sports are public, something that people of all ages and backgrounds do for their personal wellness. On the other hand, sports are private, a massive global industry, one that American consulting firm A.T. Kearney valued at $620 billion over 10 years ago. Sports are a major contributor to the climate crisis, although comprehensive studies of the industry's carbon footprint have yet to be completed, research conservatively suggests that the sports industry is responsible for 0.6% of global emissions due to heavy reliance on aviation. That's equal to 300 to 350 tons of carbon dioxide equivalents. But as much as the sports industry is a major contributor of the climate crisis, individual sports are also victims. A 3 degrees Celsius increase to maximum temperatures can double or even triple the number of hot days experienced. This is especially important when you consider the context. Tennis is a sport that follows the sun for 10 months of the year and plays 80% of its tournaments outdoors. These rising temperatures will hamper the ability of its stars to play their best and increase the likelihood of them suffering heat-related illnesses. Material changes to how the sport is played and how tournaments occur could be on the horizon as climate change leaves its scars on boarding competition. And now for a headline I'm sure you've heard a lot about this summer, the 2023 wildfire season. Two thousand one hundred ninety-three in British Columbia, nine hundred forty-three in Alberta, seven hundred twenty-three in Ontario, six hundred eighty-two in Quebec, four hundred twenty in Saskatchewan, two hundred ninety-four in the Northwest Territories, two hundred ninety-three in Manitoba, two hundred eighteen in the Yukon, two hundred fifteen in Nova Scotia, one hundred ninety-nine in New Brunswick, one hundred in Newfoundland and Labrador, and eight in Prince Edward Island. As of September 22, 2023, these are the number of wildfires which broke out this year in each province and territory as reported by Natural Resources Canada in their weekly National Wildland Fire Situation Report. 
Each of those numbers represents hundreds of thousands of people being evacuated from their homes, sometimes with only minutes notice. Houses being destroyed, firefighters battling all-encompassing flames, smoke-filled skies throughout the continent, and biodiversity being devastated as large swaths of forests are burned down. British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec, Saskatchewan, the Northwest Territories, the Yukon, Nova Scotia, Newfoundland and Labrador, and Prince Edward Island all have had more forest fires this year than the average number of fires over the last 10 years in each location. Overall, this year's wildfires have been the worst on record. Natural Resources Canada reports that as of September 5th, 2023, 16.5 million hectares of land have been burned and there have been 6,132 fires. For perspective, each year on average, 2.5 million hectares of land are burned in fires in Canada, so the jump to this year's 16.5 million hectares is staggering. Unfortunately, this record-breaking wildfire season is not over yet. As of recording, fires continue to burn throughout British Columbia, the Northwest Territories, Alberta, and Saskatchewan. How did this year's devastating fires begin? This year's fires were started due to a mix of lightning strikes, human causes, and undetermined origin, and spread with such ferocity because of incredibly dry and flammable conditions, as well as unseasonably hot weather. The World Weather Attribution Initiative has published an analysis focused on this wildfire season, especially in Quebec, and their findings have indicated that climate change more than doubled the chance of weather conditions conducive to fire this year, letting us know that the impact of climate change on this year's fires is very evident. As well, the analysis emphasizes that, quote, the wildfires had disproportionate impacts on indigenous, fly-in, and other remote communities who were particularly vulnerable due to lack of services and barriers to response interventions, end quote, which is a crucial reminder that the climate crisis is not felt the same by everybody and exacerbates pre-existing structural inequality. As fire seasons are posed to get longer and more extreme, we have the opportunity to rethink how we manage fires, forests, and other natural resources to better protect people, animals, and plants from the consequences of a changing climate and planet. For Terra Informa, this is Lizzie Barron. Thank you for listening. That was Lizzie Barron with our final headline of this news roundup. But before you go, the Terra Informa team wanted to give you a little heads up on a fan-favorite time among our volunteers and listeners, Fat Bear Week at the Katmai National Park and Preserve. Now some of you may be asking, what on earth is Fat Bear Week? To answer this question, we're briefly throwing it back to a 2021 episode about Fat Bear Week, but we encourage you to listen to it in its entirety after the show. If you're not familiar with Fat Bear Week, let me set the scene for you. You're living up on the Alaskan Peninsula. It's the end of September and it's already starting to get cold. You have one job to do before you tuck away into a den and hibernate for the cold, dark winter. And that's to pack on as many pounds as possible. How does one do that? And why make a competition out of it? I wasn't exactly sure. So I reached out to an expert, Leon Law, who works as the Visual Information Specialist at Katmai National Park in Alaska. So how to participate in crowning the fattest bear? On September 28th and 29th, this Thursday and Friday, 
Cast your votes for Fat Bear Jr. On October 2nd, you can start filling out your brackets once head-to-head matchups are announced, and from October 4th to 10th, voting begins officially. All to crown 2023's Fat Bear Week champion on October 10th and give them a hero send-off into hibernation. Head to fatbearweek.org to learn more, and don't forget to listen to our 2021 episode about Fat Bear Week. That's all the time we have for this week. I've been your host, Jacinta Royangeza. Thanks for listening. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, and all our content is created by a team of volunteers. If you like what you've heard this month, you can check us out on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Terra Informa, or head to our website, terrainforma.com. Catch you next week right here on Terra Informa.